You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Well, welcome back to Baxter Bird Studios on the Batuta Advocate radio show. You're joined by uh, myself, editor Clancy Overall, and editor-at-large Errol Parker. And today we have a special guest. Hasn't been out this way since he was um, flogging home loans out here in the, in the 90s, but he's having a bit of a, a trip. He's got the caravan rigged up and he's come out bush. Uh, we're sitting here with the Golden Greek, Mark Boris. Thank you for joining us. Hey, guy, guys. How you going? <laughs> Thank you for coming in, mate. What are you, what are you doing with yourself nowadays? Um, well, I'm still the uh, biggest shareholder in uh, the Yellow Brick Road Group, mm-hmm. and uh, I've got another business called Mentor.com.au, which yep. is a business that talks to small businesses. I'm yep. trying to put the business community, small business community, in touch with each other. Yep. Trying to build a community. Now, one thing we've always noticed uh, about, uh, particularly in what you became a household name with, was home loans. Uh, there was another bloke at Aussie that was on TV. Aussie John. Aussie John. Yeah, John Simons. John Simons. He's got the same, a similar kind of story, just the son of, you know, fruiterers. You guys were putting yourself on the front of your of your brand. Where did that come from, that, that attitude? Because you don't see that with a lot of financial institutions. You don't see the face. You were you were the face of Wizard. He was the face of Aussie. What do you think that was? Do you think it was like a, a spruiking kind of? Yeah, it was, I guess. Element? I mean, I, look, to be frank with you, I followed him. So yeah. I've known John for um, forever. Um, and I knew John when he was a, um, an article clerk in a law firm back in a like, long time ago. By the way, just as a correction, uh, John was the John lived in Strathfield, mm-hmm. and I lived in Punchbowl. Yep. Strathfield in those days was a rich area. All right. So John puts himself out as be a yeah. son of a poor guy. Um, <laughs> his father was in the clothing industry, and. Yeah. Uh, I soon recall he went to St. Pat's, and St. Okay. Pat's was a rich school. So okay. let's just get this clear yeah. okay. from the fucking beginning. <laughs> John and I were great mates, but John always had a quid. Okay? Yeah. yeah. So now I've, but I, but in his credit, John is a marketing genius. Yep. I am not. I followed John. So Aussie was the first out of the ground, and John. And but I, but my background is I understand mar- capital markets. I have a master's degree in capital markets, and I thought, well, I can do the same thing he's doing. Mm-hmm. I just need to promote myself, and yep. uh, and then I use you know my partnership with the Packer family to do that. Okay, and you knew the Packers, yeah, prior to setting up this thing, or that was something that kind of came um, together. Yeah, I did. I I didn't know them well. I didn't know. I did. I never knew Kerry. Um, I knew James. Um, yeah. through another mate of mine, a guy called David Gingell. Yeah. You know who? I mean, people go think, oh, yeah, yeah. Boris is throwing all these names up here. But like David Gingell was not the CEO of Channel Nine at the time. Like he yeah. was just a punter. He owned a thing called a surf shop business down in Bondi. So, <laughs> and um, and James is like thirty or something, yeah. and uh, he's still sort of just coming out of his nappy. So, yeah, I knew James. I knew him through David Gingell. And I got introduced to Consolidate Press Holdings at the time through that association. Yeah, right. Can you tell us a little bit about the first time you met Kerry? Because, I mean, that would have been for, for a young man um, yeah. who's, you know, like you said, come from Punchbowl. Was there a culture clash or was he kind of very much on your level? Uh, I don't know. I think I, I would never say he was on my level. I'm, I'm sort of trying to approach his level. I mean, I think the thing, that, the thing with Kerry is that um, – he liked larrikins and you know, like people like that. Um, yeah. He wasn't really someone who would suffer like your uh, academics, etc. So I didn't come across that way. I come across as a bloke having a crack. Mm-hmm. He, he knew I knew my topic, um, and the first time I met him was in a formal sense. I had to meet him once the deal was pretty much being finalised with James, mm-hmm. and uh, Kerry had to give it a, give it his blessing. 
and he's a sort of bloke just asking questions all the time and he, he somehow had this ability to get straight to the issue, the thing that scared the shit out of you all the time, the thing you worried about all the time that hopefully no one's going to ask you. That's the very question he would ask you and you couldn't escape. So uh, he'd back you into a corner effectively and he would just pursue you and pursue you and pursue you until you're pretty much about to break down and cry. Yeah. And uh, so my relationship with Kerry was uh, in the beginning uh, a little bit difficult because he challenged me but I stood up to him. Mm. But over time we became really good friends, like really good friends and t- to the right to the extent that he'd ring me when the Roosters were playing on a weekend and he'd say, you know, every second weekend playing at home, he'd say, son, you go to the footy, come and pick me up. I'd go and pick him up and it was just me and him go to the footy together. Yeah. And we did that for a long time. Um you know, I went with him on his boat. I did lots of things with him. Um, and there was a, a pro process going around at the time. Are uh, you a mate of James or a mate of Kerry? An MOK or an MOJ? And uh, that was run. That was a thing run by the Fin Review for a long time. And I was considered to be an MOK. But to be frank, I was probably, like, in terms of friendship, closer to James. Yep. But uh, Kerry and I were good mates. But it, but it, it was a challenging bugger. Like... Uh, he master, was always the boss. Master of body language? Is that one of he, those kind of guys? Well, in terms of um, his referencing to you, to, mm. to me, um, he always dominated. So he always had to be the dominant one. And uh, and you had to let him be the big dog because he was the big dog. Like, yeah. my God, he was, <laughs> he was the big dog. For me, it was a big deal just to even sit in his presence. How does one get a meeting with Kerry Packer? You know, like your first – like your first cab off the rank, like this is your first engagement with him, you know, do you go through James and say, I've I've got an idea for a business? And he goes, oh, I think the old man needs to hear about this. Yeah, well, you don't. Right. Uh, he comes to you. He comes to you. So he decides that he wants to invest in a certain asset class or a segment. In my case, it was he wanted to invest in a mortgage segment. He was already talking to Aussie mm-hmm. and he was already talking to Rams. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's a bit hard to talk to that Ram, but uh, <laughs> he, he talked to both of them. And uh, James came to me and said, listen, mate, because we were mates, and he said, we're looking at buying either one of those two. And he said, what should we be looking for? Because you're in the industry. And I started telling him stuff. And over a period of time, he said, well, why am I fucking talking to you? Am I allowed to say that? Am I allowed yeah, to swear? Uh, uh, why am I talking to you uh, about these guys? I might as well just invest in your business. Yep. And yeah. I said, yeah, okay, well, let's let's." Talk about how we do that, and 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 then he's once the 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 whole process was exhausted. In other words, and literally you are exhausted. You've got deal fatigue. He then said to me, "Now you got to go see Kerry." The last moment you got to go see Kerry. Once the deal was ready to be delivered on a plate to Kerry, yeah. that's the only way you get to meet him, Errol. <laughs> well, that's, that's it's an interesting story because you know uh, people talk about it. It's a big conversation they have in in say England right now with the Brexit and all these different conversations that are happening when they where you can see a stark difference in the political classes and aristocrats of England and you know the the workers and the punters and and I guess America has that big problem. You can even see it in the Trump family and their friends, you know, as opposed to opposed to Australia where you can literally punch ball boys high. First job was at the Victor lawnmower factory. Correct. And behind then, my house. Behind, yeah. <laughs> a decade later, you're meeting with these kind of people. Do you think that's a uniquely Australian thing that you, you can just be one of the one of these? If fellas? you have a go, you'll get a go. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I mean, I put it this way: if you can somehow manufacture the thing that might be of interest to them, mm-hmm. you the barriers to entry into their world mm-hmm. just don't exist like they do in other places around yeah. the world. Like in the UK, that would never happen. Yeah. You would have had to go on to Eton College or something like that. Yeah. The US, the same deal. Yeah. It's probably a bit easier, but the US, the same deal. Europe, definitely the case, especially yeah. places like France, stuff like that. Australia, 
And even places like Singapore, you can't get to do that. Yeah. Australia, it's the place is very democratic. Yeah. Democratization of you know meetings is it's one of the coolest things that exists in this country. Yeah. You don't think the old money, new money thing really means shit here? It might in Melbourne a bit more, yeah. but in Sydney, yeah. definitely not. In behind the hedges in Turak, it's probably a bit of a... <laughs> I think so, yeah. yeah. And, and, and in political circles, a bit of experience I've had with politics, that is the case. Yeah. Um, but, but the other thing, though, is uh, seasoning. If you become seasoned in Australia, that actually eclipses a lot of these uh, hedges that you're talking about in Turak. So, yeah. like someone like me, I'm a seasoned person in this country now. That gets me over what you would ordinarily have to put up with if you're a young guy trying to push something forward in, yeah. say, Melbourne. Join the Tattersalls Club. Yeah, yeah, correct. You don't <laughs> yeah, have yeah. to. Seasoning allows you to get past another. He's a crotchety old bastard. He's survived everything. Yeah. We might as well listen to what he's got to say. How do you get started in the mortgage game? I mean, like, it's obviously an industry where you need a fair bit of capital to get going. How did you get going? That's a misconception. There you go. Right. But you need some capital, just working capital. Yeah. Because... A mortgage, a lender is basically an intermediary. Banks right. are intermediaries. So let's, a bank A takes depositors from everyone in this room mm-hmm. and they, you know, you put all your money deposit on an IBD or some sort of um, deposit uh, account and then they gather all those deposits up because they've got to have more deposits than borrowers, depositors and borrowers, and then they repackage the money. They're paying the cost of the depositors might be 1% and they're going to lend it to um, Clancy here at 5%. So yep. they're an intermediary. They just take money short and they lend it long. Yep. So when you're in the mortgage industry, you've got to f- find that function. So you've got to find who will give me the money um, that allows me then to repackage it and retail it. So yep. I'm buying wholesale and I'm selling retail. So in my business, in Wizard and now Yellow Brick Road, we access markets that give me wholesale money. I repackage it and I... I put the margin on, and then as long as I'm selling it at the right price, I sell it to the punters and I sell it retail. So yep. you don't need to have the money. It's not your money. You yep. just need to be able to provide the working capital it takes to run the business whilst mm-hmm. you're earn enough. After which you, you earn enough money to pay yourself back the working capital. That's the deal. Yep. And did you guys, you know, with that wave, of, as you said, there was Aussie, there was Wizard, there was Ram. Was there a feeling in the financial sector that you guys had kind of blown the lid off something here that you'd kind of, you oh, know, yeah. you jumped out the back of a truck like Elvis? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. I was, we took 20% market share yeah, right. from the banks and we, we, we pulled their pants down basically. And but that was in the 90s and 2000s. Um, never to happen again though, because yeah. the GFC pretty much put the banks in a position that, and the banks also were never going to get caught unawares again, um, put themselves in a position where they're pretty much unassailable today mm-hmm. um, because they have, they have so, they're so powerful, which is the reason we had a Royal Commission, I guess. But also they're smarter. Back then, I think they all thought we would fail mm-hmm. and they probably thought to themselves, well, let's see how much market share they do take. Then let's decide what we're going to do about it. Then we can go and buy them, which is effectively what happened. Aussie's now owned by CBA. Ram's yeah. owned by Westpac. Mm-hmm. My old wizard business got bought by Aussie, mm-hmm. so it's now CBA. Um, and my business, Yellow Brick Road, I'm the only one that's left mm-hmm. who's not owned by a bank. Um, so, and you can still take market share, but you won't get twenty percent. But by the way, you don't need twenty percent. You get five percent of our market today. It's massive. Yeah. Our market today is massive. It's in the trillions. Shit. Do you think you know with the Aussie market? Do you just reckon you guys could have held on? You know, in that capacity, we had the same kind of boom back then. Do you reckon you guys would have bumped up twenty, thirty, forty, fifty percent? Because there's been housing. Well, the last five years has been something like no one's ever seen before. That's true. Mm. Um, 
I, I think what you're asking me is, should I have hung in there? No, had that come 20 years earlier, how do you reckon yeah. it would have turned out with for you guys? Oh, what, what we're doing going through now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, don't forget, back then, the housing market, interest rates were like, used to be like 15%. Yeah, right. Yeah. Then one day when we got involved, they become 6%. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, house prices went from you know 100000 to 300000 So we just had a reversal of the, of the algorithm. So if I'm paying 16% interest rate... And now I'm paying 6% interest rate. All that happened was my 6% then turned into a new price, which is three times the original price. Yep. That, that's, it was just reversal, yep. restructuring the pricing. So house prices actually went up by more during that period than they have in the last uh, five years in Australia. Yeah, right. So we, we probably rode the biggest house price rise and the biggest global liquidity boom in the history of the world, yep. which, by the way, led to the GFC. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> And so nobody would want to see that type of boom again because yeah. we now know what it brings with it. A bit and unsustainable? I, or It is unsustainable. And, yeah. you know, and Kerry used to always just say to me, listen, son, uh, one day, I remember one day he said to me, he said, son, how much money do we owe? I said, uh, I was always, a, it was a question I never want to answer and, uh, well, I never hoped I ever get asked. I said, oh, we owe, Mr. Pack, we owe $19 billion. He went white. Um, he said, What? the fuck, $19 billion, you've got to be joking. I said, no, but we've got $19 billion with assets. I said, so we've borrowed $19 billion and we've lent $19 billion. Mm. And he said, so fucking what? And I said, well, the $19 billion we owe, I said, we've um, hedged all the risks. So all the money we borrowed, we borrowed from US, United Kingdom, the US and Europe. And we bought, borrowed in all the various currencies, sterling, euros and dollars, US. And our interest rates are all different because every, different interest rates in every other country. And then we lent it to Australians in Australian dollars and at the Australian interest rate. And Kerry said, well, what happens if, um, you know, the US dollar goes to five times what it is now? And I said, don't worry, Mr. Packer. I said, well, we've hedged that. I've hedged every – I've hedged all the currencies. I've hedged all the interest rates. I've hedged all the prepayment speeds because that was my area of expertise. And, I, and I, built, I said, I built a really solid hedge. And he said, who you hedged it with? I said, this bank – I won't say name the no. bank, but this global bank and this global bank. He said, well, what fucking happens if they go broke? He said, and I said, well, these are some of the biggest banks in the world. There's not much chance. He said, oh, bullshit. He said, we're selling. And I said, uh, this is in 2004, which we sold. And, uh, and I said, yeah, but you don't need to worry. Well, he was right. <laughs> yeah. Two of those banks, th- those two banks, gone. Four years later. Yeah. Gone. Was that 08 they went? Yeah. Yeah, that was, <laughs> Fuck. He knew it. If yeah. only he was around to see that. Well, well, so he, he just passed away. He could see the GFC coming. He could see that there was a crisis coming. He, I really. think. I, I think. He, well, he's one of those blokes who just, as I said earlier, he always asked the question that nobody yeah. else was prepared to ask. I mean, logic. It's you wouldn't ask a question logically because no. uh, logically, I mean, as a person who built these structures, I know that. Uh, in a logical sense that this particular bank A had a balance sheet of X and it could easily afford to hedge my currency exposure because it's really small relative to the total business. Um, but Kerry would ask the question, what happens if they go broke? That's not a question a logical person would have asked, mm-hmm. although it's very logical. You know, like he just had this ability and yeah. uh, he put you on notice and uh, when we sold it, it made sense. We sold it to the world's largest company, which is General Electric, and General Electric's balance sheet at the time, they had $500 billion worth of financial assets in the world. They were the world's biggest finance company, yeah. um, even though they're bigger than Citibank and everybody. Yeah. And uh, 
um, they were the only sort of organisation who really could afford to buy this. And when I think about it, down you know, hindsight, Kerry's guidance was just genius. Yeah, you're big on mentorship and mentors. Who else would you kind of look at, kind of backed you and guided you as a young man? Um, well, when I worked in um, the law firm, there was a guy there called David Bapsky, who was a senior partner of the law firm I worked at. And um, David was a, a, a really great lawyer, mm-hmm. but probably a much better businessman. His ability to ask the question and always look to create a, a sort of an unusual solution was something that he taught me. So he actually dragged me out of another place and offered me a job at his, place, at his office, in his firm. And it was a reasonably big firm, but they had really good and interesting clients, like really big names who you know were getting into trouble or were doing something unusual or you now I got we got involved in the the bond sale of the uh the beer businesses we got involved in that business and uh, we got involved in the sale of uh, well the purchase by bond of from Kerry Packer of the Channel 9 business we got involved in speedos you know the swimwear yeah. and all we got we did some unbelievably interesting sort of deals which required a fair bit of creativity so I was there someone there who was able to observe all this creative thinking um and uh so he was a he was a, a big sponsor of mine personally like uh he really looked after me he i mean i lived three houses away from him i used to go to his house every sunday i knew his family very well he was really uh, a big influence on me for about eight years yeah. from about 26 to in my early 30s and and they, they were massive formative years for me in in my banking knowledge so one of the areas of expertise of our firm was banking and uh so i got a lot out of being with david in those years and uh not just he didn't just influence me in terms of um uh, my banking knowledge but he just influenced me just in everything i did every every way i looked at my life i'm not to say i'm like that now but at the time it was a big deal and uh introduced me lots of people gave me lots of credibility and i just i was able to sit around and learn stuff from him It happens all too often. Just when you think you're getting ahead in life and getting on top of all your bills, a massive utility bill comes along and pisses on the rug. All that careful budgeting, all those packed lunches, the instant coffee you've had to drink, all for nothing. Well, now there's a solution so that you can keep that rug piss-free. It's called Defer It. You upload your bill and they pay it for you. You pay it back in four equal fortnightly instalments. And just when you were thinking how much it was going to cost to keep that rug clean, here's the best part. It's interest-free and there are no late fees. It's just $5 a month and you only pay when you use the service. Get the first month free with the coupon code BILLS. That's B-I-L-L-Z. So defer it. That's D-E-F-E-R-I-T dot com dot A-U. The Defer It app is also in the App Store and Google Play. Fucking amazing. Their mission is to help Aussies take control of their bills. So if you're one of those punters out there that moves a lot of money around week to week, jump online and check out deferit.com.au. Now, on to the show. Now, you ended up on television in The Apprentice, obviously following uh, the footsteps of another prominent uh, entrepreneur, businessman uh, from overseas. Did you ever, uh, particularly during that uh, Wentworth by-election, consider throwing your hand up and going <laughs> down federal politics? Did you? I mean, Dave Sharma ended up getting, yeah, uh, getting we, the job. Uh, we, we spoke to a couple of people from uh, from the Northern Beaches who uh, who who did receive a phone call, um, a robocall, robocall, no, no, <laughs> to run against Tony. All oh, right, uh, in Warringah, did the phone ring for you at any stage? 
actually did. Yeah. 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 So uh, I was encouraged by some people to um, think about uh, Wentworth. It's prior to them, I think, talking to Dave Sharma. Mm -hmm. But to be frank with you, A, it's not the right time in my life to be doing something like that. Um, B, I don't really see the current structure of the way you have to be a parliamentarian is that you have to go and sit down and sit down in the, in the mothership for like six months a year. It's not my idea of living my life. I mean, if they could do it somehow remotely, I might be considering it. Yeah. And if I was going to represent it anywhere, I don't think it'd be Wentworth. It'd be somewhere more like um, a little bit more working class. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did. I did. And I, and I did think about it for about, you know, half an hour. Well, uh, you realise you'd have to well, take a pay cut. Um, well, <laughs> the massive pay cut. You could have gone into uh, Craig Launy's old seat. You know, his, yeah, I could have. And that's in the last election out in uh, Aussie John Country. Yeah, but it's, again, it's sort of not where I want to be. But plus, nah. I mean, at the timing of it wouldn't have been right. I can't just walk up and say hi. I'll go and stand <laughs> in Craig's seat. Um, he's a good bloke, Craig. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah but I, I actually I like politics. I have I got a little bit of a taste of it during the the last political period and uh, um, you know if I could somehow make changes I'd love to do that so you were doing robo calls for Sharma in the end so you basically put your hand up how, how did that come about you, you are you have you always been a, a lifelong robo caller for the Liberal Party um, uh, well as long as robo calls have been around which is about a year or two but um, uh, I, look I, I did robo calls for the following reason um, and I did 350,000 by the way so and I funded it myself so so and I got in a bit of trouble from the electoral commission because there was an allegation by uh, one Chris Bowen in the Sydney Morning Herald that uh, uh, Mark Burris is the uh, the face of the Liberal Party, and uh, you know I can't remember now what he said now he all, but all he does is try to promote their um, their negative campaigns or something along that along along those lines. Of course, we know where Bowen ended up, um, <laughs> and uh, but I, I agreed to do something like this because I thought I don't like the idea of negative gearing. Going and I don't like the idea of changing capital gains tax. Now, that's not because I have an objection against uh, the, the the theory behind getting rid of them. I think to some extent they are distortion; they can distort a marketplace. But at the same time, I took the view that you don't go changing good quality, stimulating policy in a market that's in a downturn, which is the property market. So I thought, well, Mark, stop talking shit and do something about it. Mm -hmm. So I did something about it. And I went and retained somebody who knew how to do all this robocall stuff. And I recorded this on my mobile phone, walking into a meeting, sitting in a reception one day, and I sent it on to the dude. And I said, mate, just go go, go knock it out. And uh, sure, it pissed a lot of people off. But, um, you know, 350,000 calls might have influenced somebody to vote somewhere somehow. So, uh, mm -hmm. But I just did it because it was time to do something and stand up and um, in, about something I believe in. And I did not never say once in the ad, don't vote Labor. And I didn't say vote Labor. I said, seriously consider who you vote for on Saturday when it comes to things like negative gearing and the change of capital gains tax. Because as we learned in the election, you know, it isn't just rich people who tend to benefit from capital gains and from other things like that. I'm are these things going forward, they're not going to go, are they? Because no, well, I, don't, I, I doubt. I mean, look, the country's um, managed by two types of policy. One's monetary policy, which is the Reserve Bank does, and they're meeting, you know, they meet on the first Tuesday of every month, so they're meeting now, and they decide whether they're going to reduce interest rates or put interest rates up, just in order to stimulate or slow down the economy. That's a pretty blunt instrument. The other one is fiscal policy, and fiscal policy is tax policy largely or when the government reinvests money into infrastructure. But let's talk about tax policy, negative gearing, capital gains tax, tax policy. Negative gearing and capital gains tax are one tool 
that are simply designed to stimulate the economy. If the economy needs to be stimulated in the construction sector, which is an important sector in this country, the construction sector, then that's the only thing I know to use to stimulate it. Yeah. If for some reason the, the property market's on fire and it's out of control and it's going fantastically you know, up, then sure, get rid of negative gearing, get rid of it, or, or slow it down, or yeah. stop it for a while. Do you reckon that was five years too late then, 10 probably, years too late? Probably, probably, yeah, yeah 100%. So, you know, because I said something about this that I objected to, them changing the negative gearing policy and the capital gains policy like two years ago. And some journalist who interviewed me 10 years ago pulled out of the Financial Review an article where I was quoted saying that negative gearing and uh, capital gains tax was distortionate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that was in the context of that time. Yeah. It's, it's about timing. I mean, policy is – stimulation is stimulation. You don't keep stimulating once you've you know, done the business, do you? Because you know? it's <laughs> worthless at that point. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you need stimulation when you need stimulation, and you yeah. need uh, to be slowed down when you need to be slowed down. And that's sort of the way I look at negative gearing. So I guess you could draw parallels between uh, the way you look at uh, you know, the economy and – and the way the Sydney Roosters are run. And <laughs> there's a bit of stimulation going into that uh, that club each year, and they seem to have a lot of talent. How long have you been involved with those guys, and why uh, are you considered a sellout in the western suburbs? Probably. Yeah. Um, well, i tell you how that happened, though, because uh, – and I actually played junior footy in, you know, in, in various Canterbury Bank Sound sides and uh, when I was at school out there. Um, then I moved – when I was 18, I moved to the eastern suburbs because I went to university – in Kensington, and I had it's too far to travel from Punchbowl, so I moved to the suburbs, and uh, and I sort of dropped off the footy a little bit. I didn't really have that much to do; we didn't follow that much. Um, coverage wasn't like it is today, and um, I wasn't going to go to Belmore Oval to watch the game. So, and over a period of time, then the Super League War started, and uh, and I was pretty upset with what Canberra Bankstown did in the Super League War. They they went on the News Limited side. Now, I quite liked the traditional game; I didn't want any changes to it. So I got a bit pissed off with the uh, Bulldogs at the time. This is in the late 90s, 96. And um, I was living in the suburbs and uh, I thought I'm going to go to watch a Roosters game because I wanted to watch some footy. And then I started watching more footy, more footy. And I got to meet Nick Politis and uh, then I was invited to join the board. So I've been on the board now for 18 years um, and uh, I'm a life member there now. And um, I've enjoyed it ever since. Look, I still have a soft spot for the dogs. For obvious reasons, my dad still barracks with the Bulldogs, um, um, so you know, like um, I, let's call them my second team. Yeah. Well, the Greek flag looks good amongst the blue and white out it there does. at Canterbury, it doesn't does. it? It does. <laughs> and uh, although the, sort of the Greeks have 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 less influence out there now than they did in the past, it's and sort of another less than they do at the Roosters by the sounds of things. Oh no, Nick Politis is there, so <laughs> that's all power. <laughs> He's a good Ipswich boy, old Politis. We yep. um, we know Queensland will claim him. It's a shame, actually, we can't get someone like that to get the uh, the the next team up in Queensland, uh, Western Corridor Magpies. Do we reckon Ipswich might be the prime location for the next NRL? They franchise. should honestly just move the Titans. I mean, it's just like that's just <laughs> they're terrible. The, but it's just such a nothing team. I mean, appalling colours <laughs> on the gold well, coast. The colours aren't any, are they? Yeah, there's sky blue, white, and yellow. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, there's, there's some shocking. Who, uh, who the hell designed that? I don't know. 
Howard. Howard Howard was there. He he was the one that unveiled it. And there's a great photo I saw getting around the other day. It was just like you could see the look of immediate regret on his face as he's handing out these jerseys. But they, you know they're owned and funded by the NRL now, and yeah, and the Gold Coast is a transient town. You're not going to get many lifelong fans living there because people don't live in the Gold Coast for longer than ten years. More no. players. I mean, players love going there because you're right. It's transient. Yeah. And, and uh, it's like how, how cool is that? You live in the Gold Coast. Yeah. You're going to live in Byron, and you can, you can go to uh, training. You know, it's only forty minutes away every day, and you can play play at the stadium there, Carrara. Or wherever it is, and um, that's, I reckon it's a fantastic lifestyle. But f- playing good footy is not about lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Playing mm-hmm. footy is a business. Yeah, I mean these guys are in the business of playing football. Then you know, I, great sportsmen that I've ever seen, like take Mayweather for example, mm-hmm. he's not a boxer. He's in the business of boxing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Brad Fittler is in the business of rugby league, and he always was. These, and if you're going to just be playing footy, then you might as well go, as you say, might as well go to the Gold Coast. But you want to be in the business of playing footy. You come and join the Roosters. Well, yeah, or you do, you know, like uh, you look at people who've done it. It's interesting you say that because I've always wondered if there are these strategic decisions. When JT went to Townsville, there was a club there that he could carry and, and it was a 10-year game and he played a long game. And I'm kind of seeing the same thing with Ponga at Newcastle. You know what I mean? They've, with their with their streak that they've had and then the talent that's building underneath, you know, whatever's going on there. It's kind of a long game. That's the business of football. That's a, and that's what co- that's how coaches think now. Yeah, and that's how the administration of these football clubs are good ones. That's how yeah. they think, and they're thinking about. I don't want to say dynasties, but they're yeah. building ten year programs. Yeah. yeah, and if you're building any business, I don't give a damn. It should be a five to ten year sort of period. You've mm-hmm. got to have that the view. Like every day is an important day, but you've got to have a, a long view on it. The old days, you just put a club together, and that's why Canberra Banks was so powerful. Peter Moore, mm. the Bullfrog, built dynasties. Yeah. And he built it through not only through his own family in terms of how the club was controlled, but he had, he, enough, kids, he had enough kids to field his own team. And, and cousins <laughs> and uncles and aunties. Like his sister was the mother of the Hughes boys. Yeah, yeah, right. And then uh, and then his own kids um, went and married the Andersons. Yeah, yeah. Like it's and he built these dynasties. It's the same sort of stuff you see in a Game of Thrones, you know, yeah. like he got this family marrying that family in mm. order to bring the two groups together. Like it's pretty clever and that's how it works. Yeah, the family clever, the Mortimers there, yeah, all that. You know, it is interesting. Do you have any examples of any sports stars that just weren't in the business of it? I guess if you look at someone like John Daly for that, he kind of had he's, all the He's a good example. Yeah, he had all the talent and just wasn't in the business. Well, I, I got more examples of people who were in the business. Greg yeah. Norman, for example. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, his success far outweighed his skill. Yeah. Yeah. And, his, and also far outweighed his own record. Mm-hmm. Like, the amount of money the guy's made and yeah. the, the fame and the respect, probably more importantly, that he got as a golfer is far greater than his actual skill base. Yeah. I mean, the guy was in the business every day, was in the business of being a golfer, and he made sure he made all the right connections. Like, he was close to Kerry. He made every connection that was important to run his game, his business. I mean, I, I look around some of the young guys now, and, so, like, you know, we have them in our own side, I guess, and, you know, you know great talent, but... Unrewarded talent's almost a proverb. Yeah, you know it's you know you went through school. You remember kids who were fantastic at either academically or f- sporting wise. They weren't the ones who probably are being most rewarded today. Um, it's the guys that hung in there. Yeah, yeah. or the girls are hung in there, and yeah. uh, that's to me that's critical. And if you, if you're running a football club, you've got to get that message through. Say someone like Trent Robinson does it. You've got to get that message through to your players. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it can't get through. And some of these guys are transient. Like, like Jimmy Maloney. Mm-hmm. He's a great person. He's in the business of rugby league. 
He doesn't give a shit. He's a journeyman. He goes from club to club. He runs out of, you know, whatever. He decides, I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to get more money, but I'm going to play my last six months brilliantly. I'm going to make sure I get more money. I'm going to get recruited by somebody else. And he's extended his life. His life has been incredibly long in rugby league. Even now he's you know, he's running the, the whole New South Wales state of origin side. That guy is clearly in the business of rugby league. Yeah. Everyone needs a mentor, don't yeah. they? And I think that's right. That's yeah. where mentoring comes in. And, and, and I mean, you know, I don't know how he rates on your show, but Alan Jones... We'd whether, love an interview, Alan, if you're listening. We'd love an interview. Whether you agree with him, we don't agree with him. A lot of stuff he says I don't agree with. A lot of stuff he says I do agree with. But mm. one thing he's been great at is grabbing sports people and being a great mentor towards mm-hmm. them, yeah. and then getting him in, sending him in the right right direction. Some of them hadn't actually made the right. You know, some of them gone a bit a little bit astray. Um, <laughs> one, of which, one, of, one of which is sort of quite quite vocal recently. But um, but but nonetheless, he does mentor these people. And you're yeah. right; these sports people need good mentoring, and probably this you know like a. My whole my whole objective in my business life now is actually to go to small business owners who, who think they're news agents instead of being in the business of being a news agent, yeah. and that's my whole game plan. Mm-hmm. I want to show these people how to be in the business of, as opposed to just being doing yeah. what they're doing every day. Is that mentor.com.au? Yep, it's something that I just believe in. I want to I want to pay forward what I I've learnt, mm-hmm. and I've I've had some of the best mentors there are. And I didn't know it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and but what they taught me is one thing they always taught me is that they're in the business of even politicians. Like I mean, for me, great prime ministers usually come out of being a good treasurer at some stage, and or premiers like Gladys, for example. She's a good example. The ones who are even the best prime ministers are the ones who are in the, being the business of being a politician. Mm-hmm. Paul Keating, Bob Hawke. Uh, John Howard. You reckon ScoMo's got both of that? I think ScoMo's got there. Yeah. yeah, he didn't have it when I first interviewed him when he on my podcast when he was uh, the treasurer. Yeah. But my last podcast when he was the prime minister, which is just before the election, yeah. I noticed a totally different person. You reckon he's topped up his cordial since then? He mm. totally has, and he's he's <laughs> sort of got it. Mm-hmm. He's he's, and I don't see Shorten was never in the business of being a politician. Shorten was being was a trade union guy who's now a politician, mm-hmm. yeah. and he wasn't going to get there. That's that's my assessment. Yeah. And people read this, you know, the, the electorate somehow they read this stuff, and um, you know, you've got to be in the business of. There's and a sixth sense. You're right in the electorate. And- How about Albo? Did you think Albo's the same? I don't yeah. think I don't, right now. I don't think Albo's displaying. I'm in the business of being a politician, and I'm in the business of winning this, and I'm in the business of making sure the Labor Party. <laughs> Proceeds to knock these guys off. Yeah. I'm holding on with both hands. That's what yeah, well, that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I don't see anyone in the opposition, in the state Labor mm-hmm. either, yeah. who's in that position. Gladys is in the business of running the state. Yeah. Nick Griner was in the business of running New South Wales, other than he had a bit of running with the ICAC. But, <laughs> but I mean, he was still in that business. Everyone does at some stage. If you're, some stage, if yeah. you're good at business, you're running yeah. with ICAC. Bob Catt is in the business of politics. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Richo, mm-hmm. great example. Like, yeah. The guy, you can't kill Richo. Like, yeah. Richo has got, had every organ basically yeah. extracted from his body. And I had lunch with him, and I'm an old mate of his, and I had lunch with him about uh, four weeks, three weeks before the election, two weeks before the election. He turned up in a wheelchair. He's got a bloke pushing him around. He can't drink anymore, which is a bit of a shame because I just love him when he's on the drink. And But he still he ate everything on the table. Every, he went right through the whole menu, and we had a, a great conversation. But he was right there and then was predicting what would happen if Shorten didn't win the election. Like, like right at the levels of... Uh, who's going to be the shadow treasurer, et cetera, et cetera. These guys are so far ahead of everybody else, yeah. it's ridiculous. 
Would you are, are you willing to say any any kind of businesses or businessmen or women that you you are mentoring now any any kind of proud kind of products of the of the wizard's wisdom? Um, probably not. Yeah. Uh, not no one individual. Yeah. Um, I've taken the view that I can't do that. I don't have the time to. The reason I said I mentor dot com to you was because I can't go and do individual mentoring. Yeah. yeah. Because who do I choose yeah. um, and how do I do it? Yeah. I mean, I get approached a lot um, and I used to do a little bit of it like some years ago, but it was sort of random. It wasn't done properly. So I thought, okay, that's why I'm, I'm going to set up Mentored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole objective behind Mentored is if you want a mentor, I can't do it, but I can sort of try and spread my knowledge, what I know amongst you know thousands, um, yeah, just by them coming online and having a look at what it is we offer. And we're about to launch our new um, website in uh, two weeks' time, yeah. which is going to have tools and you know a whole yeah. lot of stuff on there. Well, just quickly before we go, Mark, it's a very contentious issue here in Batuta. And I feel like I've been getting set up the whole conversation. <laughs> by the way. You're about to uh, go uh, clock. We're going to have to ask that question you don't want to no. hear. No, no. Uh, a very contentious issue here in town is the, the issue of home ownership and which generation had it easier in your opinion, uh, are houses easier to buy now or were they easier to buy, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago? They were easier to buy 20, 30 years ago, like uh, ridiculously easier. Yeah. They were easier to buy two years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, for anybody who's trying to buy a home today, I feel sorry for them because it is unfair mm-hmm. that home ownership will not be as accessible to the average Australian compared to what it used to be, and that's all been brought about by the bad behaviour of some banks, and it's all been brought about by politicians playing games and introducing the Royal Commission, which, we, by the way, we never needed to have. Yeah. And as a result of that happening, banks now have our, our, our new codes of conduct. They're now trying to prove they're not the baddies. It's not as if, our, by the way, we went through it, we had a subprime crisis here or all our, our housing mortgages that started to fall apart. Yeah. We still are the best performing nation in the world by far when it comes to housing and in terms of paying back mortgages. Um, we have never had a blip in our whole system, yet it was decided to hold a Royal Commission and that Royal Commission now, the people are going to pay for it yeah. and people are going to buy a house from today on. Just quickly, when you were ripping and tearing with your home loans, where were they mostly being sold? Were they suburbs or like this idea of inner city living as well has completely changed the market landscape, you know what I mean? Once upon a time, you know, living in Brisbane's West End or in Redfern, it'd be no one would even dream of doing that. But now that's that seems to be the, the goal for a lot of professionals anyway. Uh, where were you selling them? Was it the display homes or was it, was no, it the it leafy was, suburbs? No, or? it was more... It was more um, established housing. Yep. And I'm not talking about the, the you know the wealthy housing foreclosures because yep. you know they they try to borrow too much and we couldn't sort of lend to those people. Our average loan was uh, five hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Um, still is at Yellow Brick Road. Our average home loan is about five hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. Our average borrower was aged between thirty and forty nine. Mm-hmm. Um, our average borrower's income is one hundred and twenty thousand um, dollars. So and we are lending mostly on houses as opposed to apartments. And um, we are now, we are a, we're not a market maker, we're a market uh, taker, so we take the market. So to answer your question, we respond, our lending responds to where the market comes from. So the market is coming from in a city um, you know, like Ipswich, or not like, uh, like Surrey Hills and Redfern and those sorts of environments in Sydney and similarly in other, other states. All we can do is follow where the market comes from. Mm-hmm. I actually think that... Um, 
it tends to be the people who are the first home buyers are tend to be buying further out mm-hmm. and they're the harder to get set. Yep. They're harder for us to approve those loans because generally speaking, um, they need more deposit or something's going wrong with the place. So we tend to lend to the established housing market. And let's just fingers crossed no more of those towers crumble. Oh my God! Like, I mean, well, you know, that's that's interesting. That, I mean, I, I, that, that's a big issue. For, you know, like I mean, I it's got nothing to do with my business, but <clears throat> excuse me, I, I find that to be a abominable that mm-hmm. something like that would happen. Yeah, I mean, I, everyone's going to blame everybody else, certifiers, all sort of stuff, but I just find it abominable that um, given engineering standards today, mm. that you can have something that's going to sink into the ground. Did you flag it when you saw all these towers going up overnight? It was, you know, it was happening in Brisbane. It was happening in I, Melbourne. I, I didn't flag that something was going to sink, but yeah. I, I was concerned that everything was going up too fast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if they're cutting corners, but I just maybe they just got, engineers got too busy. I don't know because it's not as if you can sort of say, "I'm a builder. I'm not going to talk to an engineer. I'm just going to build the building." I mean, there is a whole process you've got to go through, mm. and engineers are engineers. I mean, everybody uses the same engineers. It's not as if you can go and use some little guy around the corner who's got no experience in this stuff. But could you imagine if you bought one of those apartments, you got a mortgage, you bought one of those apartments, seven or eight hundred thousand minimum, mm. you probably borrowed five hundred grand, um, and now you can't sell it, you can't live in it, you can't rent it, mm. and it's worthless. That's worthless. Spewing totally. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mark, thanks for coming on today. Have you have you got the white Mercedes Benz yet? No, I drive a blue Toyota Hilux. Beautiful dual cab. Dual cab. Oh yeah, and it's called Rogue. Rogue. Mm. That's not the number plate, but it's called the Rogue series. <laughs> yeah. I like the uh, four-wheel drive. Um, the, there's no white Mercedes. That's for gangsters, mate. Um, <laughs> and like, I'm out of it. Cocaine white. I'm out of it, but too. I mean, I, like, uh, yeah. I had to drive the four-wheel drive out. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. got to look the part. Yeah. You do. You do. And you fit, well, you fit in well. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Yeah, I mean, actually, I'm a little bit uh, disappointed because I thought you were going to um, – Take me down some sort of trail somewhere and tie me up, hog tie me, and just le- you. leave me I'm there. I'm sure you got a bit uh, nervous when we start talking about Sharma and Robocalls. Well, I got, I got very yeah. nervous. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I really love it. Yeah, thanks, thanks for joining us. Thank you.